Section 15 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. Diplomatist and Statesman, Part 1. Before Wellington sailed from the continent in the autumn of 1818, he had accepted the office of Master General of the Ordnance with a seat in Lord Liverpool's cabinet. The England to which he returned was neither peaceful nor prosperous. She was exhausted by the long war, her rulers increased the distress by pursuing selfish objects, and it is not surprising that her people were riotous and discontented. Happily the master-general was not called upon to take an active part in maintaining order, but his advice was sought and given. He busied himself in improving his estate at his own cost, having a profound conviction on which he always acted that property has its duties as well as its rights he spent his entire rental upon the land from which it was derived draining and fencing building new cottages providing large gardens he held that a labourer should have one acre of land and promoting the comfort of his tenants to such a degree as to draw praise from censorious cobbett himself in dealing with his office he unearthed the arrangements of james the second a weak fellow but a good man of business finding they were excellent the duke brought the department back very much to what he had made it a remarkable fact preserved by lord stanhope the accession of george the fourth in eighteen twenty brought to a head the long-standing quarrel between that personage and his wife the sins of both were notorious but the new king was so unpopular that the people including all ranks made a heroine of the queen with her the duke had no sympathy but he disapproved of the proceedings initiated behind the backs of his ministers by the king and only tacitly acquiesced in those pursued in parliament at a critical moment when the bill of pains and penalties had been read a third time by a small majority and not passed but postponed for six months he submitted a memorandum to the king, pointing out the peril of pushing the matter further. If it were pushed, inquiry by both houses was inevitable, an inquiry, he boldly said, in which not the queen, but your majesty, yourself, and your English and Hanoverian servants, and the servants of the Duchy of Cornwall, and those employed by them, will be put on their trial. That memorandum was effectual, apparently, but nothing more was done, and the king did not even try to change a ministry which failed to satisfy his anger. The duke was made Lord High Constable, and as such took part in the coronation. It is commonly said that Queen Caroline was refused admission to Westminster Abbey, but the cabinet decided that she could not be excluded from an open ceremony. A place was reserved for her among the peeresses, and it was she who refused to enter the abbey and sit with them. The duke's part in bringing about the convulsion, as Canning called it, which shook the kingdom was slight, and always on the moderating side, and he reminded the king that every evil which had occurred in the course of the inquiry was foreseen and foretold by ministers, who, however, which he does not say, could not muster courage to oppose the royal will. In fact, the only minister who resigned was Canning. The king was furious, but the offence was not mortal, for within two years, chiefly through the influence of Wellington, 
canning on the death of lord londonderry became secretary of state for foreign affairs before that event occurred the duke accompanied his sovereign to belgium in eighteen twenty one and was his guide over the field of waterloo the king listened to his explanations but showed no special interest or took it coolly as the duke said until he came to the grave of lord anglesey's leg and then he burst into tears he could sympathize at least with the loss of a handsome limb there was a general peace in europe but the continent was not peaceful the empires and kingdoms were no longer at war with each other but more or less the people were at war with the emperors and kings greece was in open revolt the janissaries overawed the sultan the neapolitans obtained a temporary mastery over their monarch and the spaniards held their king in practical duress then the holy alliance came into play in a notably worldly fashion it was supposed at the time and may be still that the british government was subservient to a sanctimonious confederacy invented by the emperor alexander but even his brothers of austria and prussia who signed the treaty because they did not wish to offend him thought he was affected in his mind so far as the british ministers were concerned they had nothing to do with what castlereagh described as a piece of sublime mysticism and nonsense which alexander himself laid before him the duke of wellington he wrote happened to be with me when the emperor called and it was not without difficulty that we went through the interview with becoming gravity the holy alliance although england had no share in it was a real force enough when the neapolitans broke into insurrection the british government stood out for non-interference which was always wellington's doctrine and declined to be party to austrian intervention the internal conflicts in spain placed them in still greater hostility to the plans of the holy allies to determine what should be done a congress was held at verona and wellington was sent thither to represent his country how he bore himself may be read in his dispatches but he only carried out strictly the policy of his colleagues and his own lord liverpool writing to canning before the congress met said that even if a change of dynasty were brought about in spain it would be no ground for hostile interference by the powers and that the conduct and character of king ferdinand made even the personal question the weakest he ever recollected in a case of revolution wellington at verona informed the emperor of russia that with us it had become a principle not to interfere in the internal affairs of any country excepting in a case of necessity and that this principle did not grow out of our parliamentary constitution but ought to be the guide of all governments be their constitutions what they might nothing can be plainer or more consistent with the entire course of wellington's career he told the emperor at a later period that in his anxiety to fight the revolutionists he had left one ally out of his calculation which is it alexander asked i replied time time would remedy many of the evils complained of as resulting from the spanish and other revolutions but if that remedy were awaited said alexander the bon gens and royalists would be lost and so they parted the truth is that the ultra-royalists led by the comte d'artois and m de chateaubriand were bent on invading spain 
in order to fly the french flag and gather glory for the restoration respecting the heir to the throne wellington in eighteen eighteen uttered some prophetic words the descendants of louis the fifteenth he wrote will not reign in france and i must say and always will say that it is the fault of monsieur and his adherents it was they who forced on the spanish war of invasion and it was they who ceased to reign in eighteen thirty the congress of verona was the grand climacteric of the holy alliance and it expired almost before the death of its projector and patron the emperor alexander one picturesque little fact outside the gloomy arena of politics which occurred in the ancient city has been preserved among strange scenes few were stranger than that of wellington and the empress maria louisa mother of the sometime king of rome playing at ecarte and paying each other in napoleons she was grateful to the duke for winning waterloo because in eighteen fifteen she had a lover who afterwards became her husband and she was not in a condition to return with safety to her imperial spouse returning to england in the beginning of eighteen twenty three the duke was obliged to defend and did defend with point and vigour the course pursued by himself as the agent of the government at verona there was a strong desire in some quarters to take part with the spaniards a desire which even those who felt it would have repressed had they been in office we have seen what the policy was how it was adverse to the domineering views of the holy alliance and failed only because england by reason alone could not prevail and disclaimed the idea of using force on either side it is instructive to observe that all parties were under the delusion that the french invasion of spain would strengthen the bourbon monarchy a delusion entertained by the french themselves whereas it was one of the causes which led to the ultimate expulsion of charles the tenth wellington's course in the matter was honest and above board and the sharp criticism showered upon him must be set down mainly to party exigencies as well as parliamentary custom canning more impatient and defiant than the duke who never indulged in threats longed to speak out his mind to the french but it was not until four years afterwards that he uttered the famous sentence i called the new world into existence to redress the balance of the old being determined that if france had spain she should not have spain and the indies the difference between the duke and his colleague regarding the recognition of the spanish colonies was one of degree not principle canning wished to do the thing at once the duke as usual favoured moderation yet even he slow to move in such a matter saw that recognition must come only he would have gone no further than was necessary but have had each case determined on its merits at verona where the subject was discussed he carefully left it in such a state that his government might do what it pleased if canning did not exactly call the new world into existence since it had been more or less much alive since the beginning of the peninsular war he did call up something else the monroe doctrine can claim him as its parent for he suggested the declaration to mr rush at verona wellington succeeded in averting a war between russia and turkey which threatened the general peace and alexander went home a sadder if not a wiser man toward the end of eighteen twenty five he died rather suddenly at taganrog and his brother nicholas by virtue of a family compact reigned in his stead 
wellington was dispatched to st petersburg on the accession of the new emperor which gave him an opportunity of ascertaining if possible the intentions of the czar toward greece and turkey he was soon involved in a diplomatic tussle not only with nesselroda but with the emperor also and in the end he could do no more than defer for a time the meditated attack on the sultan and obtain a protocol having for its object a peaceful settlement of the acute greek difficulty on a basis suggested by the russians themselves the time was now at hand when he would be summoned to take a more prominent position in the state so far as office went george the fourth made the duke constable of the tower in eighteen twenty six and when the death of the duke of york early in the next year left vacant the post of commander-in-chief it was at once bestowed on the field-marshal who announced his appointment to the army with characteristic simplicity and brevity he was now in his right place but fate decided that he should not remain in it long lord liverpool prime minister since eighteen twelve fell hopelessly ill and in april the king sending for canning empowered him in the usual way to reconstruct the ministry on the principles which guided that of lord liverpool i need not add canning said in writing to the duke how essentially the accomplishment of his task must depend upon your grace's continuance as a member of the cabinet in reply to the obliging proposition the duke desired to know who was to be the prime minister and the answer was in brief mr canning who added that he had laid the letters before the king thereupon observing that he thought mr canning with the best intentions would not be able to hold fast the liverpool principles the duke declined to join him and followed up his refusal by resigning the offices of commander-in-chief and master-general of the ordnance the duke was vehemently censured for his conduct but it should be observed that he had no confidence in canning who himself had no right political or moral to the cooperation of wellington during the ministry of the brilliant orator the king affected for three months to command the army the duke of clarence became lord high admiral and russian influences so far prevailed in the cabinet that the protocol of st petersburg was converted into a vague treaty which led to the battle of navarino and forwarded russian aggression quite as much as greek emancipation lord godrich afterwards earl of ripon succeeded canning but he could not hold his colleagues together and in january eighteen twenty eight the king sent for the duke and made him his prime minister he did not seek the office in eighteen twenty seven he said that he should be worse than mad to think of such a thing but when requested by the king he took the post as he had taken others holding himself to be as he always put it the retained servant of the crown it is in this light that we must regard his assumption of a great responsibility an office for which he said he was not qualified yet was really far more qualified than many other men the canningites joined the government and although the emperor nicholas seeing his opportunity made war on turkey the duke loyally carried out the treaty negotiated by canning with the policy of which personally he so strongly disagreed but he never would consent to be the mere leader of a party he was always the servant of the state and kept its compacts that conviction of his duty was finely illustrated when he had to deal with the roman catholic question 
Ireland, as he believed, especially after the election of O'Connell for Clare, was on the verge of civil war, and what civil war is he well knew. Moreover, it was his fixed opinion that, whenever the consent of the Crown could be obtained, the question could be settled. Personally, no religious prejudice withheld him from enfranchising the Roman Catholics. His opposition rested on broad and deep political grounds. But when the tide of opinion in both islands rose to a dangerous height, looking only to the common weal and setting aside his personal bias, he boldly told the truth to the king and secured his needed consent. He remarked long afterwards that justice would not be done to his action in settling the vexatious dispute until his communications to the king were published, and those documents, now accessible to all, are his justification. They and all his writings on his native country show that he did not at any time blink the facts which underlay its unhappy condition. If he were stern in requiring obedience to law, he did not spare the gentlemen of Ireland, whose treatment of their landed estates and neglect of their duties were so repugnant to his conscience and opposed to his practice. Dreading a civil war as one who knew what it was, he strove to avert the calamity and fortunately did not strive in vain. How thoroughly he had gauged the dangers lurking in the whole question may be judged from the fact that in one of his earliest letters to the king he foresaw the possibility, I might state it more strongly, he says, of the Roman Catholic tenantry refusing to pay tithes or rents, the clergy and the landlords might have recourse to the law, but how is the law to be enforced? How can they distrain for rent or tithes on millions of tenants? He said it would probably be the first measure of resistance and rebellion, the words testified to his prescience, but the measures foreseen were not attempted until he had been many years in his grave. One might think that the men who set them in motion, not for their own sake, but as means to obtain an independent parliament, had studied and caught up their schemes from the Duke's writings. He has been taunted with inconsistency because he brought his great influence to bear on all who were opposed to Roman Catholic emancipation. But no act of his life was in stricter accord with the fundamental principles governing his conduct. Early in the struggle with the king, he said, it is the duty of all to look our difficulties in the face and to lay the ground for getting the better of them. He had no fixed hostility to the concession. That it had been so long delayed was not his fault, and when he saw that it would deliver the country from a civil war, he thought it high time that the concession should be made. He was right in doubting whether it would pacify Ireland, which he had long seen aimed at independence, but whether it would or not, the contest with rebellion would be less arduous. Politics has been called the science of exigencies, and in this exigency the Duke, keeping the permanent interests of the United Kingdom in view, did what he believed was best for them. It was an act of expediency, and he certainly would never have set it upon what some would call a higher level. In like manner he acquiesced to the repeal of the Test and Corporation Acts, a futile remnant of exclusiveness which the legislature had to nullify every year by an indemnity act. The passing of these measures was accomplished because the Prime Minister of the day was not a party man. 
three considerable episodes two serious and one comic enlivened the stormy period of the duke's administration the comic episode grew out of the pretensions of the duke of clarence lord high admiral he took on himself to hoist his flag in the thames summon his board to portsmouth set forth in command of a squadron all in excess of his powers under the law the duke courteously but firmly remonstrated even the king declared his brother hopelessly in the wrong and in the end the lord high admiral unable to prevail resigned but he bore no malice for after defying his board or council he ended up shaking hands and asking them all to dinner at bushy another disturbing influence of a grimmer kind was the duke of cumberland and the constant troubles wrung from wellington a cry of impatience between the king and his brothers he wrote to peel the government of this country has become a most heart-breaking concern another trial was more grave mr huskisson thought fit to vote against his government and immediately to give the duke an opportunity of placing his office in other hands the duke took him at his word but mr huskisson did not mean to resign he meant to draw forth a request that he should stay the duke convinced that it was not with one individual but a party that he had to deal would not entreat and so mr huskisson went out of office and all the canningites with him principles were paraded but they were not at stake the duke said that he could not get a definition or clear idea of whig tory liberal or mr canning's principles adding in a pregnant passage this i know that this country was never governed in practice according to the extreme principles of any party whatever much less according to the extremes which other opposing parties attribute to their adversaries the canningites were replaced and took their share out of the government in passing the measure so long supported alike by castlereagh and canning roman catholic emancipation End of section fifteen